0: It's a strange thing, isn't it, to be here and singing with masks on and um, trying to figure out who each other is. When one couple walked up this morning and I said, "Uh, I'm sorry, I can't, I don't recognize you with your masks on. And they said, oh, we're first-time visitors. (laughs) (laughs) So that's great. They're down the hall and glad to have them here. Uh, It's kind of sweet, too, to be preaching with the back door open. Uh, Perhaps someone will hear the glorious message of the gospel this morning, which is what this text is all about. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we praise you that now we have the opportunity to meet together and to sing your praises. Lord, what these two great, great songs that we sang remind us that all we need is Christ, The only thing, really, that you have given to us is Christ. He is our all in all. He's everything. It's not just that we feel that he is everything to us. Sometimes we don't feel that. But the objective reality is he is everything for us. Everything you have for us, everything that we need to relate to you properly, All of it comes to us through Christ. And it's in him that we live and move and have our being. So we worship him freely this morning and we praise him because he is worthy. Oh, Father, help us now to think clearly about your word and use it to encourage us and change us. All of it for your glory and for our own great joy, we pray. Amen. Amen. When God reveals a precious truth to his people. He never intends for us to receive it as a a piece of fine art to behold and to enjoy and to study merely. Rather, his intention is that by beholding and enjoying and studying these truths, we would be moved to action. For believers, at the end of all theology, the end of all theology is that Christ would be glorified and that we would follow him more nearly and love him more dearly. And this this approach to truth, truth first, followed by an appeal to action, is common in Paul, and it's very easy to see it here in his letter to the Colossians. In the first 34 verses, Paul paints a masterpiece of theological truth. And you can think of it as kind of an uh, an abstract portrait of the preeminent Christ depicted with a fine scripture brush, as is always true with the Apostle Paul. Paul wants us to behold, to enjoy, and to think deeply about every stroke every theological stroke on this masterpiece. And then, after taking in the glory of his person and work, he expects us to respond in specific ways. He says, for example, in chapter 2, verse 6, As you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, so walk in him, or so Live in him. Let your life be consistent with the theological truth that you now exist. In the mind of God, you exist in him. You exist in Christ. This is our calling. And then the question is, how should we walk in him? What does it mean? What does it look like to walk in him? And we talked about that last week, and we learned that we should engage in the dependent labor of growing deeper and stronger in the faith, while at the same time channeling the overflowing river of our thankfulness back to him. And so he, by his Spirit, causes us to grow and become stronger. We, in turn, are looking for his work in our lives, conforming us to the image of Christ and doing 10,000 things in us, and for that, we identify it and we, we thank him. We engage in heartfelt, heart-motivated thanksgiving to the Lord for all that he does and he is for us. And the reason Paul wants us to engage in these active responses is because we, like the Colossians, live in a world where there are many false teachers attempting to trick us into believing that true Christian flourishing requires more than Christ. And it doesn't. In fact, to add anything to Christ is to dilute what God has given to us. So Paul is doing two things. He warns us about false teaching, and he is equipping us with the necessary truth to combat it, namely the truth of who Jesus is, who Jesus is, and secondly, what Jesus does or what Jesus has done for us. And so this morning, Paul turns our attention back to that masterpiece of the preeminent Christ and draws the eyes of our hearts to that section of the portrait where Christ is being depicted as reconciling sinners to God. Now remember, the overall theme of this is Is that Paul wants us to understand that we need nothing but Christ. Now he's telling us why we need nothing but Christ. The timeless truth of this passage can be summarized like this. That while man-made religion may have the appearance of wisdom, only Christ and Christ alone can reconcile sinners to God. But how? How exactly... Does Jesus reconcile sinners like you and me to God? Well, in the passage before us, Paul points to six spiritual realities by which Christ has reconciled us to God. Six theological truths, and we're going to cover all of them this morning, and rather quickly. In fact, I would suggest to you that since we're covering all six of these, you better just listen fast, because they're going to be coming at you. Um, the passage before us points to these six, these spiritual realities by which Christ has reconciled us. Six truths that no religious traditions, philosophies, or superficial religious practices can ever attain. And all of it is is structured in such a way that you can identify the markers. And I hope by now that you're starting to see the markers. And the markers here are these particular phrases that Paul loves to use. And I'll show you one that that we read just a few moments ago as we were reading the scripture for the morning. And Jason read for us in verse 14 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. He says, For he himself is our peace who made both groups one and has broken down the in his flesh, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might, listen carefully to this, that he might create in himself one new man. That means a church, the body, a single body made up of many parts. But that phrase, that he might create in himself, that's union language. In this passage, here are the six terms that he uses. Are you ready? You know these. In him, this is the order. In him, in him, with him, with him, with him, and in him. Um, as you read the text in the morning, as, as you spend time in God's word, be on the lookout for this in the New Testament, in the writings of Paul. Because not always, but most of the time, It is pointing us to our union with Christ. Now, why don't we begin this morning by standing and reading our text. Stand with me, please, in honor of God's Word, and we'll read Colossians 2, 8 through 15. Colossians 2, beginning with verse 8. And here's what Paul says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Now, we need to move quickly, as I said, to fit this into the time allotted to me this morning. So the question is, how how were believers reconciled to God? But before we dive into the answer provided in this text, we should remind ourselves why Jesus is the only fitting object of our exclusive faith. The answer in verse nine is this, that in him, look at verse nine, in him, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. In him, the whole, the whole, The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, ponder that for a moment. And as you're pondering it, I want you to think about the Old Testament tabernacle. Remember the tent? It's often called the tent of meeting. It was also the prototype for the temple of the Lord in Solomon's day. Think about that tabernacle in the wilderness where Moses was instructed to set it up. And, And we read in Exodus 40, verse 34, That the cloud, after it was set up, the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter. You bet he was not able to enter. I mean, the visible manifestation of the glory of God in the Old Testament was a pillar of cloud and fire. It was a frightening thing to see. And there it was the visible manifestation of the glory of God. And the tabernacle was the one place on earth where the blazing Shekinah glory of God took up residence among men. What Paul is saying here is that the same Shekinah glory, listen carefully, the same Shekinah glory, the very presence of God has taken up residence in a man Jesus Christ. And in that sense, think about this. The man Christ Jesus as he lived on earth was the real temple of the Lord. He was the real tabernacle of God. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. And by the way, the apostle John alludes to this in John 2. Chapter 1, verse 14, when he's talking about the word, this this creator, God, and he says this, and the word became flesh and, most of your translation says, dwelt among us. The word dwelt to dwell there means to pitch his tent. Literally, it is he tabernacled among us. And John says, and we beheld his glory It's exactly what Moses saw. The glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Beloved, the point is, within the man Christ Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells. That's why he is worthy of our faith. That's why we need nothing else for Christian flourishing in this life. And think of this. This reality that the whole fullness of deity dwells in Jesus it was it was what the story of Jesus calming the storm on Galilee what that was all about that's why feeding of the 5000 that's what it was all about. That's what walking on the water was all about. That's what raising Lazarus from the dead was all about. That's what giving sight to the blind was all about. And all of it was to show that the man Christ Jesus is very God of oh, very God. Do you see why I said that Paul's portrait of Jesus is an absolute masterpiece? And he's been showing us one small portion of it. But there's more. Now we're ready to tackle the six spiritual realities by which Christ has reconciled us to God. Number one, we are filled in him. We are filled in him. Look at this, verse 10. Here's what verse 10 says. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, we'll come back to the head of all rule and authority in just a few minutes. But here, let's just focus on we are filled in him. Not only has God, listen carefully, not only has God taken up residence in man, the man Christ Jesus, but now Jesus has taken up residence in us. This is amazing. The text clearly says, and you have been filled in him, which I believe is just another way for Paul to say what he's been repeatedly saying, that we are in union with Christ. He in us, we in him. Remember, back in chapter one, when Paul tells us, he reveals the mystery that was that was hidden in past ages and generations? you remember what it is? Christ in you, the hope of glory. How do you know you're going to heaven? Christ is in you, and you are in him. This is union with Christ. Beloved, this in a nutshell is what it means to be born again. It is in a nutshell what it means to be redeemed, regenerated, saved, justified, converted, When God in his mercy causes us to be united with Christ, he is in us and we are in him. And we could close the book and that would be the end of the story because it it subsumes every aspect of our relationship with God. Yes, it's good for us to dive into a specific teaching, gospel teaching like justifications. Huge, huge but it is only one thing that we receive when we are in Christ. That's how God thinks of you, united in Christ. This is how God thinks of you if you are one of his own. Secondly, we are circumcised in him. Again, how did did Jesus reconcile us to God? We are circumcised in him. Verse 11, look at verse 11. He says, in him... Also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by the putting off of the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Now, circumcision, as you know, if you've been a believer for any period of time, any, even a short amount of years, you know that circumcision was a really big deal in Israel. The law of God clearly taught that circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with his people, Israel. Israel. To be uncircumcised was to be excluded from the covenant community. Of course, you know that the church of Colossae was largely, perhaps exclusively, made up of Gentiles. And so in chapter 1, verse 21, Paul describes their former state. He says, you were alienated. You were hostile to God and alienated. Gentiles were on the outside looking in. And there was no way in. You could become a proselyte, but even that had its limitations. That's what it means to be uncircumcised. And historically, no uncircumcised man was allowed in the temple. In fact, they had a sign. And one of the, of the posted signs of the day has been discovered. And there's a replica of it over at Dallas Theological Seminary. They have it in, in their, their glassed-in booth thing, display. And it says something like, no Gentile may enter these premises upon penalty of death. Gentiles were on the outside. Paul got in trouble because somebody accused him of bringing a Gentile in the temple. And it almost ended his life. The Gentiles were even excluded from the physical place of God's presence. So how did, how did Jesus reconcile them to God? Well, Paul tells them and us, in him you were circumcised, listen to the qualifier, with a circumcision made without hands. The phrase made without hands means that Jesus provided a spiritual circumcision. In reality, however, this, was, this is what God always wanted for his people. It's what he always wanted for his people. And we can go back to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, and And just in Deuteronomy, which is, uh, the whole book is about the restatement of the law. It was given to them in Exodus. Now they're getting ready to enter the promised land. God has them repeat it. Stand up. Get everybody together. Let's rehearse the law of God. And they're rehearsing the law of God, chapter 30, verse 6. Just as Yahweh was having Moses rehearse the details of the law of God, we read, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. This is what God promised. One day there would be a new covenant, a covenant by which your old dead heart of stone would be, would be transplanted with a living heart that loves God, Ezekiel 36 Somehow the Israelites fell into the idea of surgical salvation. If you you just got circumcised, especially on the eighth day, then you were good with God. And some religious traditions, some Christian traditions, have a very similar approach, and it is if you get baptized as an infant, you're good. You're good. And this was an error, it, was, it is now and it was then. But in God's mind, sin and righteousness are not about externals. Sin and righteousness, say it with me, are matters of the, of the heart. And so heart circumcision is needed. And, and heart circumcision is the peeling away of that which is dead and useless to our relationship with God. It is the act by which God grants you A new heart that is alive and responsive to God and that loves God. That's why Jesus says in John chapter 8 to the Pharisees, arguing with the Pharisees, and they said, we are sons of Abraham. We are sons of God. And, And Jesus says, if God were your father, you would love me. Why? Because if God were truly your father, he would have given you a new heart, like he said in Deuteronomy. And you don't have a new heart. How did God provide this for us? Paul says in verse 11, by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now what is the circumcision of Christ? if you, if you dive into theological commentaries, this is the $10,000 question. What is the circumcision of Christ? Well Paul, I believe, is not speaking it's not speaking when of. of Jesus being circumcised in the temple on the eighth day after his birth. That's not what he's talking about. Rather, in this context, he's talking about the removal of the flesh of his body, the removal of what was dead and useless. Specifically, he meant Jesus' death on the cross. Paul is picturing for us Jesus' death on the cross as the circumcision that we needed. It is taking away the dead flesh that can, that can amount to nothing to God. The death of Jesus in our place is the means by which sinners, a sinner's heart is circumcised, cleansed, and transformed. And, and this brings us to the third means by which Christ reconciled us to God. Paul says, number three, we have died with him. You see how these two connect? we have died with him, verse 12, Paul writes, having been buried with him in baptism. Now we know that spiritual circumcision points to Jesus' death because the very next thing that he talks about is the grave, is burial. Because you now live in union with Christ, the way God thinks about you is that when Christ died, you died. When Christ died, you died. That's how identified you are in the mind of God with Christ. You are so identified with Christ in the mind of God that when he died, you died. His death is attributed to you. You Think about the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. It teaches That Jesus made atonement, or that he reconciled us to God, which is the topic of this passage. He reconciled us to God by taking the punishment, by bearing the punishment, the wrath, the retributive justice that we deserved. He took it upon himself when he died on the cross. Why? Because according to God's holy law, The wages of sin is what? Is death. The wages of sin is death. Now, I'm not finishing that verse yet, but I will in just a minute. Hang on. If Jesus were going to be saved, if, if Jesus were going to save us from God's holy justice, the only way to do that was for him to die and be buried in our place. In my place condemned he stood. That, that is what Jesus did. This is the substitutionary atonement. He died in our place, so Jesus died on the cross, after which he was laid in a tomb for you. And on that day, God saw you as united with Jesus in his death, but that's not all. The fourth thing Jesus did to reconcile us to God was to raise him again from the dead. Verse 12 says, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him by faith in the powerful working of God. So this is the first mention of us having any part in this. But we receive this by faith. We receive it by faith. But God is doing all the work. God is doing all the work. Now we need to observe here that Paul is not speaking of water baptism. He's not speaking of water baptism any more than he was speaking of physical circumcision one verse before. The baptism that Paul is speaking of is our spiritual baptism into Christ. We are baptized, in this passage, it's not into water. The water baptism is a shadow. It's a figure of the reality of our being baptized into Christ. Notice the past tense, having been buried with him. He's referring to the day when God immersed you into Christ the day you were united with Christ. Listen to how Paul describes it in Romans 6, 3, in case you think maybe this is just a theological construct that some modern theologian came up with. Here's what Paul says. It's the same author, right? Paul is telling us in Romans chapter 6, verse 3, he says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Note that last phrase. In order that we too might walk in newness of life. Paul's implying here that the result of dying with Christ and rising with Christ is that our lives will never be the same. He's talking about spiritual and visible realities that have a very definite outward effect that you can see, that you experience, that others can see. That you are growing, you are becoming more like Jesus Christ. He raised us up for this purpose in order that we too might walk in newness of life. The second half of Colossians is going to be all about what what this new life looks like. How do we relate to one another? How do husbands and wives relate to one another? How do fathers and and children and, and so many, how do you relate to the government and and all of those things. And the point is that your relationship with all of those institutions and, and those people and things, all of it should be governed by the reality or changed by the reality that you have been buried with Christ and you have been raised to walk in a new kind of life, a new life. Not only do we have a new relationship with God, listen carefully, Not only do we now have a new relationship with God, we now have a new relationship with sin. I've said this before. You tell me you have a new relationship with Jesus, I'm going to say, praise God, tell me about your new relationship with sin. Are you still doing all that stuff, the same as you always did? Does your heart long to not only battle it, but to win? for your own joy and for the glory of God? Has your heart changed on those issues? Are they changing? He says in Romans 6, 9, sin no longer has dominion over you. Sin no longer has dominion over you. Beloved, what Paul wants us to see is that union with Christ is at the very heart of our salvation. And Paul mentions it again at the end, of Romans 3, when he famously writes, for the wages of sin is death. I read that just a minute ago. Now listen to the end of this. You say, Pastor, we know this verse. I mean, we, we we're taught this in Awanas, like cubbies. Cubbies, we learned this in cubbies. Yeah, but I bet you never saw that it was all about union with Christ. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus, our Lord. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. This isn't just about praying a prayer. This isn't about getting your theology right. This is about the work of God by which he puts you in Christ. And all of the things that come as a package of your salvation and eternal life, all of it comes to you in Christ. So Paul implies that the result of dying with Christ and rising again is that you live a new life. And back in Colossians 2, when Paul summarizes in verse 13, this is what he says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together, listen to these words, with him. It's union. You're in Christ And that brings us to the fifth thing that Jesus did to reconcile us. We are forgiven in him. Look at the second half of of verse 13. Paul says, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. You got to know when Paul wrote that, he said, oh, that was good. That was good, nailing it to the cross. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving me that one. Now, I mean, when Jesus bore all of our sins in his body on the cross, all of our sins in that moment were forgiven. What is sin? Well, James tells us that sin is any transgression of the law of God. But of course, since the law of God is merely a reflection of his infinite perfections and person, there's no way any of us are going to be able to keep the law. We're never going to be able to rise to that, and we've already blown it. Everything we did only plunged us deeper into debt against God's law. Its legal demands called for our condemnation. There was a certificate of debt, as it were. There was a ledger that kept track of all of your sin. So what hope could there be? that any one of us could be saved. Here's our hope. When Jesus bore all of our sins on the cross, God, as it were, took the record of our debt and every breach of God's holy law and nailed it to the cross. Think of it like this. When Pontius Pilate had those soldiers come to the cross where they were nailing Jesus, they created a little placard, and... And nailed it to the cross, declaring, this, this is Jesus' crime. Here is Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. And they literally nailed it. And, and, and the Pharisees were upset about it. Take that sign down and say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And remember, Pilate said, no, what I've written, I've written. Well, they could not have known that at the same time, that placard was physically being nailed To the cross, God was invisibly nailing another declaration to the cross. This man, Jesus, is dying not for the sins of any sins of his own, but for yours. All your guilt is laid upon him, so you could be set free, declared righteous in God's sight in Christ. And beloved, if that were not glorious enough, Paul tells us one more thing that he did for our reconciliation to God. He not only purchased our forgiveness, but in so doing, he conquered our spiritual enemies. We, number six, are rescued from our enemy in him. Apostle Peter tells us that Satan is roar, Satan is, is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is a powerful enemy, but when Jesus died on the cross and rose again, he defeated the devil and his minions. Back in verse 9, remember I told you we'd come back to it, in verse 9 we're told that after he, he was, we are filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Paul is qualifying who the him is. We are filled with him. Who? The one who has power over all rule and authority. Jesus is the king of kings and lord of lords. He rules over all. Before before Jesus ascended into heaven, you remember he declared when he gave the great commission, before he gives the great commission, the verse before, he says, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. And at the cross, the greatest battle against the enemy of our souls was fought and forever won. And so in verse 15, we read, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And people have asked me just in the last couple of weeks, what does it mean he put them, in, put them to open shame? Did anybody see it? How did we see it? That wasn't the point. He was using actually a... Uh, as kind of a metaphor, a historic reality in the time when Rome ruled the world. In those days when a general of Rome was successful in battle, he would ride into Rome with, it, with all kinds of pomp and circumstance and all the people would gather. And here he comes with his army in his train, and at the end of the train there would be a line of men shackled and stumbling along together. These were the leaders of the conquered enemy. They would be set on display, humiliated, and eventually killed. This is the image that Paul is using. It is one that everyone would have known. And he wants us to see that Jesus, he's not merely our silent sacrifice, but he's our conquering hero. He is our conquering king who has vanquished the enemy of our souls. Jason and I were talking about these things this week and um, thinking of Christ as the conquering hero, the king, the the one valiant in in battle, and he reminded me of C.S. Lewis's Lying the Witch, in the Wardrobe where the children have just met Mr. Beaver and Mr. Beaver is trying to explain to them who Aslan is, this great lion of Narnia. And as he is explaining that they will soon meet him, Lucy responds by saying, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. Having looked at this masterpiece of the preeminent Christ. Do you understand a little better why Paul says that nothing else is needed for Christian flourishing than Christ? If you are in him, you have everything God could possibly give you for your good and for his glory. He made us complete in him. We need nothing else. And by his finished work on the cross, we are reconciled to God. How could we need anything else for Christian flourishing? We have Christ. Father, we will praise you forever and ever because of this great truth. It is understandable to us at some level and yet on a far deeper level It is beyond our ability to fully comprehend. We know that it is glorious and great, and we live because of it. And we will live forever with you because of it. And so we thank you, and we praise your name. And we pray all of this rejoicing in you and in thanksgiving to you in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.